I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rivals, the show about music, beefs, and feuds, and long-simmering resentments between musicians. I'm Steve. And I'm Jordan. And welcome to the second of our three-part series on Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. Today, we're going to focus on Stephen Stills, the unofficial musical director in the band's early CSN days. And in later years, he'd be the chief aggressor as he struggled with his old Buffalo Springfield bandmate Neil Young to maintain his dominance. They're basically the U.S. and Russia of the CSNY Cold War (laughs) dynamic. Yeah, you know, I mentioned this in our first episode in this series, but like I remember you said that David Crosby is your favorite member of the band. And I have to say that for me, like my favorite is Stephen Stills, at least of like the non Neil Young members. Like I feel like you have to distinguish Neil Young from like the rest of the band. I mean, Neil is definitely the biggest, but in terms of just like the rest of the guys, like I'm a, a genuine fan of Stephen Stills. I think, again, outside of Neil Young, He's the best songwriter, the most talented musician, and the most charismatic. And people forget that in many ways, like CSN was his baby in the beginning. Like that first album, you know, the iconic record where it's him and Graham Nash and David Crosby sitting on that couch in the house. And I think that's still like my favorite record, like to come out of this collective. Like that was Stephen Stills's like work. Like he played most of the instruments. He was, as you said, the musical director of the band. And he wrote like many of the best known songs like Sweet Judy Blue Eyes and Helplessly Hoping. Those are all Stephen Stills songs. And his ambition like really fueled this group at the beginning. Yeah, I feel like Stills has been really overshadowed in recent years. And maybe it's because Nash tours so much and he has his memoir and Cross is so prolific in the studio and on Twitter and Neil Young is Neil Young. But I feel like Stills, you know, was the main reason for these guys coming together. And he's the linchpin of the sound in so many ways. And he just kind of, I feel like he gets forgotten sometimes. Yeah, you know, Stills to me in many ways is like kind of a tragic story because I think he really was like a brilliant guy. And until about 1972 or so, I think he really did keep pace with Neil Young. I think that they were equals for a while. And then something happened. It was like a mix of ego, booze, drugs, and bad choices like derailed Stephen Stills. While Neil Young just kept going and, you know, became the Neil Young we all know and love. But, you know, even now, I still love Stephen Stills' his music. I love his songs. I love his career. And I love, of course, his many, many football jerseys. <laughs> so, so I'm excited to get deep into the Stills verse here on our second episode in the CSNY series. So without further ado, let's get into this mess. <laughs> All right, well, the heart of the Stephen Stills CSNY rift, you really got to take it back to the Buffalo Springfield days with Neil Young. And Buffalo Springfield, again, almost like the birds with Crosby, could be its own episode. We should totally do a Buffalo Springfield episode later on down the road. It's just filled with drug busts and deportation drama. And it's just amazing. It's amazing that after the dysfunction of that group, 
they still decided to give it another shot. That still blows my mind. Neil and Steven met in, uh, in 65. They were both playing clubs in Ontario. And uh, Stephen Stills' band broke up soon after, and he moved to uh, L.A. to try to make it as a, as a session musician. And he famously auditioned for the Monkees, which could you imagine if that happened? Like, how rock history would be different if Stephen Stills got the Monkees part that Peter Tork got? Oh, yeah. There'd just be, like, you know, all these conga parts and uh, Latin music <laughs> breakdowns and blues guitars. Like, the Monkees just would have been far out with Stephen Stills in the band. But I guess, thankfully for all of us, uh, he did not get the part. Neil and Bruce Palmer, the bass player, uh, were in a band called the Minor Birds with an early Rick James, which I highly recommend listening to. The band broke up when Rick James went AWOL. They decided to go to L.A. to try to find stills and get something started. They went to L.A. and they couldn't find him. Neil and, and Bruce were looking for Steven everywhere, looking in all the clubs and stuff. They couldn't find him. They're about to give up and head to San Francisco when they actually were stuck in a traffic jam on Sunset and they were looking, going the other direction was Stephen Stills, one of the great traffic jams in rock history, great fortuitous traffic jams. Yeah, this this only happened in the 60s, I think. Right. Where you could just be driving around <laughs> randomly, and then you're going to meet, like, oh, yeah, let's form a band with this guy, and we're going to be icons. On the side of the road. Oh, yeah, I mean, an incredible story. And from what I understand, it was like a couple weeks later in April of 1966 that Buffalo Springfield made their debut. I mean, it came together really quickly. The whole sort of, I don't want to call it a gimmick, but the crux of the band was centered around the interplay between Neil and Steven's guitar work. That was kind of like, you know, their gimmick, really. It was a time when bands limited themselves to like really short, little tight eight bar solos. You listen to like George Harrison's solos and stuff in the Stones. It really, they weren't these like long winding, like guitar pyrotechnics that you hear later in the decade. They were really short. Yeah, and I think it's important to point out, too, that this is, like, before the Allman Brothers. It's before Leonard Skinner. It's before, like, a lot of the famous guitar bands that we're, you know, used to seeing where there's two guitar players going at it. I mean, like, Buffalo Springfield, like, really were pioneers in that kind of sound. And it's fascinating that they didn't really get a chance to pursue it, in part because, I guess, Neil and Steven couldn't get along. Yeah, it's funny. You, you read all the, the reviews of their their live shows at that time and, and even some of their studio work, and they always describe the gu guitar solos in like violent terms, like duels and battles and war. And, you know, it's kind of the way it was. I mean, you've got uh, still sort of more blues-based solos and then Neil's sort of atonal squeals, like the stuff that you'd be known for later on. I think the track Bluebird is probably the coolest example of on record of how they played off each other. That's That's such an amazing song. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, off the Buffalo Springfield Again record, which was their second and, I guess, last record as a band. Yeah, I mean, you, you hear the tension in the track. And Stills, in some of the early press bios for the band, there's actually a line that says, uh, Stephen Stills is the leader. At least he thinks he is, which uh, is <laughs> right. it, it was pretty amazing that even early on, they were like kind of joking, not so joking at this. And, and he would say, yeah, I was trying to be the boss. You know, I, I had this military upbringing in the South. I went to military school and they taught me how to be an officer and I was trying to like, you know, just be the leader here. And that graded on uh, young Neil, who was equally strong-willed, but I think more quiet and reserved. And they, they butted heads the whole time. Yeah, and you can see this play out in the singles that were coming out early in Buffalo Springfield's career because the first couple singles that came out, you had nowadays Clancy Can't Even Sing and Burned, which were both Neil Young songs and neither song really went anywhere in terms of being a hit. The next single, however, for what it's worth, a Stephen Stills song that, of course, ends up being a huge hit. And it's a song that even to this day, I think is like one of the iconic 60s, I guess, protest songs. I, it's not like an explicit protest song. It's more a song about protesting, I think. But um, you know, you hear that guitar hook on the song and the, you know, hey, stop, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down. I mean, it's such a famous song. I mean, it was revived recently at the Democratic National Convention. It's a song that like you hear and you still feel like it has modern relevance. And I think that song becoming a hit, it probably emboldened Stills at that time to feel like, oh yeah, this is my band. Like I'm writing the biggest song. You know, I can really take control here. And it doesn't seem like it's a coincidence that like once that song becomes a big hit, that's when Neil Young starts looking at the door, essentially. <laughs> like he's now feeling like, okay, I don't really want to be in this band. And it is very fascinating, the dynamic that exists between these two guys, because as you said, like Stephen Stills had this militaristic background, which is going to uh, manifest itself in, in kind of funny ways once we get into the 70s and the cocaine starts flowing. Uh, we'll get into that later in this episode. But, um, you know, he was, I think, much more overt about um, asserting his control in the band. 
Whereas Neil Young was much more passive aggressive. Like he asserted his power by like not showing up and not doing certain things. So like there was this famous instance where Buffalo Springfield, they were going to be the first rock band on the Carson show. And uh, Neil Young decided to bail at the last minute. And then Neil Young also decided to bail at the Monterey Pop Festival, which as we all know, that's like the debut of Hendrix. It's like where the Who really broke in America. It like broke so many bands. Janis Joplin became a star there. You know, Neil Young is sort of intentionally doing things to sandbag Buffalo Springfield, which of course is directly hurting Stills because he's extremely ambitious. And, you know, we alluded to this in our previous episode. I feel like this is the beginning of like Neil Young just terrorizing Stephen Stills psychologically. (laughs) It's like Charlie Brown in the football. (laughs) Stephen Stills is Charlie Brown and Neil Young is Lucy, right? I mean, that seems to be a dynamic that plays out repeatedly, you know, in their relationship. Oh, yeah. I mean, even when they got back to, they did a Buffalo Springfield reunion in 2012 and Neil bounced on that like seven dates in or something. Yeah. I mean, 50 years later, he's still still looking at the door whenever uh, he's with Stills too long. Yes. I mean, as much as like we, you know, valorize Neil Young for being this uncompromising, unpredictable artist, and I valorize him for that. I mean, I love Neil Young. If you look at it from Stephen Stills' perspective, I feel like he was the victim of that a lot, maybe more than anyone else, as we're going to see as this episode unfolds. But like in the short term, as we are in the timeline right here, this essentially short circuits Buffalo Springfield before they can really kind of realize their potential as a band, which sends Stephen Stills adrift looking for a new project. Yeah, and he spends a lot of the late 60s like kind of playing with short-lived musical collaborations. He did the the famous Super Sessions with Al Cooper and Mike Bloomfield, which is an interesting album. Uh, but, he, but he wants to create this like Everly Brothers-style harmony duo with David Crosby, who around the same time had been booted from the birds. And he recorded some demos under the name, which I love, The Frozen Noses. Uh, a, a, right. a very early, probably one of the earlier cocaine references in, uh, in 60s L.A. pop. I gotta say. Yeah, and we, and we talked about that in our Crosby episode, how that ended up coming together. Because I think we talked about how, like, Crosby was, like, a pivot point between Nash and Stills. And, like, he helped bring them together uh, into this musical unit. But, like, once these three guys were together, I mean, I think it's fair to say that Stills immediately assumed control of the band musically, right? I mean, like, that's not an exaggeration. Yeah, musically and even just professionally, too. I think that... Label-wise, he was the point of contact for Atlantic, who ended up signing them, because Atlantic, uh, Emmett Erdogan, was a huge Buffalo Springfield fan. And I honestly think that Nash didn't have the cred in the United States to really do the talking to the labels. And I think a lot of the labels were terrified of Crosby. I mean, Columbia let him go when he was kicked from the birds just because he was such a hassle to deal with. So I think that Stills was crucial in actually getting, like, laying the groundwork for making this band happen on a functional level. He famously went to London in early 69 to try to sign with Apple Records, the Beatles label. And he really screwed up. I guess George Harrison went out to see him. And uh, and Stephen goes, oh, yeah, George, hey, can you ask Paul if he'd produce us? And, and George <laughs> was just like, this is right when George is feeling like really belittled. And he's like, Jesus Christ, no, I wanted to produce you, goddammit. But you know what? Forget it. Which, I mean, you know, right. given what happened to Apple is probably the best thing for CSN considering that Apple was in such a shit show by the end of the 60s. And really, like, they didn't need anyone to produce them. I think Stills in in particular, like, he was very well equipped to take the musical reins in the studio, which is what he ended up doing. And, like, you know, there's that famous story, I think Graham Nash tells it, about how when they were making that first record, the nickname that they had for Stills was Captain Many Hands. (laughs) Because... Stills was playing everything, essentially. He was playing guitar, he was playing organ. Um, they had Dallas Taylor in the studio, the drummer, so he was handling the rhythm parts. But otherwise, Stills was really taking the bull by the horns to create this record. And it, it's interesting to look at how that album evolved, because I know Graham Nash has talked about how when they first got together, he envisioned their first record being a, just a pure acoustic record. Because, you know, like when they would play their early shows and not really even shows just playing for people around Laurel Canyon and showing off their harmonies. It really was just about these like lovely acoustic ballads and their harmonies, but stills wanted there to be an electric element to the record as well. Like he wanted there to be some like rock and roll credibility. So even while stills was writing these beautiful folk epics, you know, like sweet Judy blue eyes, for instance, is a Stills song. And that kicks up the record and really sets the tone for what that record's going to be. And then you have like, you don't have to cry helplessly hoping again, all still songs. I feel like in terms of like being an arranger, like he's the one who like gave that record. It's sort of epic sound like wooden ships, for instance, or a uh, long time gone. 
he's the one that, you know, is really like laying on the overdubs and, and making it more than just this sort of like twee folk record. It is like a big time rock record. Oh, yeah. I always thought he was basically the musical director of that time. I mean, I, I think that, that Cross handled a lot of the, the vocal harmonies. But yeah, like you said, he was the one who would, who would spend long, long, long days in the studio, sometimes, you know, multiple days in a row, which would become a problem later on. But he was really, he would say in interviews, you know, I don't think the others would mind if I said that the first album was, was mostly my baby. Exactly. I think he really envisioned that Again, that acoustic electric hybrid, because, you know, this was also the era of like Jimi Hendrix and Cream, like a lot of these like really overamped blues rock bands. And Crosby, Stills and Nash was an antidote to that. I mean, and they did kick off that singer songwriter movement that really ended up playing a big part, especially in L.A. music of the 1970s. So, yeah, along with having that, you know, sort of rock credibility that Stills brought to the table, again, I feel like his songs more than the other guys on that record, are just such great examples of like early L.A. singer-songwriter folk music. You know, Helplessly Hoping, for instance, which is still one of my favorite Crosby, Stills, and Nash and Young songs. Maybe my favorite. It's like such a beautiful song. It really takes you back to that time in a really evocative way. Yeah, I love how, how Jimi Hendrix described their sound as Western sky music. I, I don't know what it means, but it fits perfectly. <laughs> I know, I, I agree. That's it's absolutely true. Yeah, but you know, the thing about being Captain Many Hands is that like you can't be Captain Many Hands on stage. You know, they needed someone else who could help fill out their sound when they played live, and that's how you end up getting Neil Young back in the band, where Stephen Stills is like, "Okay, this guy terrorized me." But maybe this time will be different, right? I mean, like, why would he bring him back I into the fold? I, well, he he wanted Steve Winwood, and I guess Steve was like, "No, I'm I'm, I'm busy doing Blind Faith right now. I got I got better things to do." And so I guess it was Ahmet Erdogan who, you know, being the Buffalo Springfield fanboy, kept pushing for Neil, and he eventually was the one who convinced Stills to give it another shot, and then. Everybody else in the band, too, I think, was even like, you sure you want to do this? Still was like, no, no, it'll be different this time. It's cool. It's cool. It'll, it'll be great. So they got Neil to sign on on the condition that he would be made, you know, full partner, name in the marquee, because I think in the beginning, they just kind of wanted to have him be like Dallas Taylor and um, and Greg Reeves, just be another guy on the stage. And Stills would say, you know, don't worry, everybody will know it's you. Everybody will know you're there. But uh, but eventually, I think Neil held out for like a month or so before they, they he finally uh, got his way and got, got his name on the marquee. And, you know, that can't have sat well with Stills. I mean, who, you know, he just wanted basically a glorified sideman to free him up to like take the spotlight, to take some cool guitar leads. And now he's got his personal nemesis next to him, who also has equal say <laughs> in the band. Like, I cannot imagine how that must have went down with him. But have, have you ever seen the uh, the, the performance of uh, Down by the River on that TV special in 70, one of the few CSNY TV shows that they ever did? Seeing oh, Neil yeah. and, and Steven just duel together is incredible. It's electrifying. So... It's like one of my favorite versions of that song. Yeah, like, oh, you, yeah. you really see, like, what they could do on stage trading off guitar licks like, the only like issue i have with it is that it's only five minutes yeah. like, i wish that went on for 20 minutes where those dudes could just you know solo off each other for the longest time and i think like when you watch that clip you can really see like okay it makes sense like to bring neil young into this band because it is electrifying seeing these guys play together but you know in, in a broader sense i don't know how you feel about this but you know if you want to look at csn and csny as being like two different groups i kind of prefer csn even though Neil Young, I think, is obviously like the most talented out of any of these guys, I just feel like CSN like makes more sense as a group. Like those three guys together, I think, complemented each other really well, and they kind of completed each other in a way that feels like more like a real band. Whereas like Neil Young, you add Neil Young to your band, like he's not gonna just blend in. Like he's too strong of a personality, and uh, you know, as I mean, we laugh when Stephen Stills calls Neil Young the snake, like in the Garden of Eden. Uh, but I, I kind of think he's right. I mean, and it's really, I mean, it's not necessarily Neil Young's fault. Like Neil Young is Neil Young; he's going to do what he does. But it's like you know, Stephen Stills had this line once where he said that Neil Young never played team sports. You know, and he's like, like he doesn't understand, like how Stephen it works. Stills, like, yeah, he's who, right. who lives in football jerseys, by the way. <laughs> exactly, but it's like if you look at Neil Young, for instance, like, you know, he tends to surround himself with like people that aren't as good as him. Like, if you look at Crazy Horse, for instance, like Crazy Horse is an amazing band. I love how primitive they are. Like, that is, you know, what gives so many Neil Young records their like unmistakable vibe. But like. 
there's something about that band that enhances Neil Young's guitar playing because his guitar playing sounds so much more epic because the rest of the band is like pretty rudimentary, you know? And I feel like that's like another example of like how Neil Young can be passive aggressive and be even more effective than Stephen Stills as being aggressive aggressive, you know? The other thing here too that kind of blows me away is that like Neil Young, and we'll get into this in our Neil Young episode, he would never refrain from like taking shots at like the other three guys in this band. But isn't it fair to say that he wouldn't have been nearly as famous if he hadn't have joined Crosby, Stills, and Nash, because they were already like the biggest band in America, and he wasn't really that popular yet. Although his name recognition was zero. Yeah, like he used them as a stepping stone, essentially, and he ended up surpassing them like by the time of Harvest, he had a number one single with Heart of Gold. But I just wonder, like, that must have just compounded the trauma that Stills felt, because he must have seen that happen in real time. Yeah, I mean, Stills really, he shot himself on the foot by having... Neil come in because suddenly he just completely undercut the CSN brand that he had built and it was, you know, built into the biggest band in the country. Now by adding Neil, the trio will never feel complete again. You know, whenever the three, the original three who, you know, are wildly successful come together, there's always going to be people saying, well, where's Neil? Where's Neil? And it's just forever that brand is gone. That brand's going to feel like second tier. And still says this again and again in interviews. He would say that CSNY felt like a full-time job, whereas CSN was something you could just slip into like an old shoe. And I feel like that really reinforced the idea that like Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young with Young there made it this vibrant, challenging, difficult, tempestuous thing. Whereas CSN were, were kind of boring, kind of bland, kind of safe. And yeah, I, I think that he inadvertently devalued the thing that he worked so hard to make for that first CSN record by, by welcoming Neil in. All right, hang on. We'll be right back with more Rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am... The Ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can really start to see that really come to the fore when they start making Deja Vu, which is the first record that they make with Neil Young. 
And we talked about this a little bit in our previous episode about how Stills was pretty hard on Crosby during this time. You know, he was making him do all these takes of the title track. He was belittling Almost Cut My Hair, maybe with justification, you know, we'll see. Uh, But, uh, you know, he was, again, trying to be the taskmaster that he was on the first record. And I think he was also really getting into cocaine at this time. So, like, this is the period, again, where he's just, like, in the studio for, like, five days straight, not leaving, you know, just wanting to get everything right. And... You know, he had the problems with Crosby that we already talked about. But then he also, like, really kind of ran afoul of Nash and Young, too, at this time, didn't he? Yes. Uh, it was a dark time for kind of everybody in the band. And, and Still's relationship with Judy Collins was ending. And uh, and he started coming up with these really sort of sad down songs like Ivory Tower, which I think later became Sugar Babe. And this annoyed Graham, who really wanted to leave listeners with, like, a positive message. He would say, like, you know, what's the point of bringing other people down with your sadness? So... He didn't really like the attitude of, of a lot of Stills' songs at that time. And he also resented Stills kind of meddling with his songs, even when they made him better. I guess uh, they got into like a huge fight over Our House. The I guess Stills wanted to add like an organ part instead of having that kind of slightly twee harpsichord thing. And I guess Teach Your Children was going to be, I think Graham described it as a Henry VIII style song. Uh, and then it was Stills who made <laughs> it like, gave it like sort of country, countrified. I think it's, it's Jerry Garcia, right? On, on Pedal Steel. Yeah, like one of the great pedal steel parts of all time. Yeah, I mean, I, so yeah, that was, I mean, I think Stills still had a, an incredible eye as a music director, but I think, I assume his way of going about it wasn't as sensitive as, as it could have been in the studio. Yeah, and then, of course, the biggest issues are with Neil Young. And I think the crux of their conflict was that, you know, Stephen Stills, again, is this perfectionist in the studio. You know, he's doing blow all day long. He wants everything to sound immaculate. And then Neil Young, of course, is not that guy at all. He is like all about rawness, you know, doing things live, you know, keeping things imperfect because he feels like that's where the personality comes in. I mean, you can hear that on his solo records, especially as we get deeper into the 70s and he makes like the Ditch Trilogy and all those wonderful albums. But um, yeah, they end up, I think, fighting over the song Woodstock, which I think is like a live in the studio take. It's like the most rocking song on that record. Although I think Stills went back and he like, re-recorded a couple verses that he thought like vocally it wasn't as strong as it could have been and like Neil didn't like that I think there was also an issue too like where Neil Young would like basically like treat his songs on the record as like separate from the rest of the album like you know you think of songs like like Helpless for instance wasn't he like taking the tapes like of that song and like you know sort of scurrying them away to like work on them with like David Briggs because like he wanted it to sound more like a Neil Young record than like a CSN record Right, which I mean, for someone who's a control freak like Stills, I mean, no, no, this is a band. Like, you don't get to do that. You don't get to have your thing be completely separate, engineered and produced by your own specific person who works just for you. I mean, mean, that's kind of an outrageous thing to do on Neil's part. Yeah, and again, I think Stills probably felt like, dude, I asked you to join this hugely successful band. Like, we're already popular, like, before you joined. I know what I'm doing. And now you're not going to listen to me. Yeah, exactly. Like, why don't you listen to me? And, uh, you know, let me be in charge. Whereas Neil Young, again, you know, he wins by retreating. He wins by, like, not being in the studio, you know, much of the time during the make of this record. And by taking the songs that he does record to somebody else, you know. And it's, like, the best strategy that you could have. Like, you know, Stephen Stills wants to think of himself as, like, this military mastermind. But, like, <laughs> Neil Young was the mastermind. Like, he knew if you're dealing with, like, a like an overbearing force, you retreat and you let the overbearing force like destroy itself and that's what happened with steven stills essentially especially as we get into that like 1970 tour that they did which you know ended up like really wearing down the band and i feel like that was the tour you know along with the making of deja vu like where where stills was like really starting to alienate everyone else in the band by like again just being this sort of aggressive bullying overbearing guy that also like overplayed like a ton on stage you know because he wanted the spotlight on him Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a famous story. They go to uh, England in January 1970 to play this big prestigious show at the Royal Albert Hall. And Stills, as you said, is like the very picture of Southern bravado. He had that great phrase that was, my mediocre is better than your best. Uh, <laughs> but he's he's nervous and he, and he gets there and he, he's playing and he, he sees like Paul McCartney in the front row and then midway through, Paul's gone. And he didn't realize that Paul just went up to the cheap seats to like, you know, be part of the crowd. But he thinks that Paul McCartney walked out and he's feeling really insecure, and, and the British press do what they do and just sort of give, like, middling reviews of the um, of the concert. And he gives an interview right after the show where he says, you know, I, I this started out as a really beautiful idea, this band. We were full of enthusiasm and ideals. 
But now a lot of that feeling is gone between us. And that really sort of sets the stage for the tour later that year in the in the summer of 70, where it starts to fall apart. He fires uh, bassist Greg Reeves on the eve of their, their U.S. tour um, for a number of reasons. One, he thinks that just Greg is, is too inconsistent in how he plays. And for somebody like Steven, who, you know, really wants things to be a certain way, that's not going to fly with him. And also, I guess Greg and Neil were getting really tight. I think Greg was on uh, after the gold rush. And I'm sure that made him uncomfortable, made him think that maybe Greg wasn't an ally with him anymore. So he fires Greg. They have this awful opening night on their tour where Stills have been thrown off a horse. And so he hobbles onto the (laughs) stage on crutches. Um... And he's great story, by the way. Like, I love that story. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that he fell off a horse, but like, <laughs> why? Why are you riding a horse, Stills? Especially again, like you're doing cocaine all day long, and now you're gonna hop on a horse. Just doesn't seem like a good idea. No. So he, he he's on stage. He's injured on stage. He's playing over everybody. He's he's back in Neil's. I, I think he was playing helpless, and uh, he's playing piano. He's playing all over him, and Neil's like shooting him dirty looks like dude back back off this is this is a, my song it's a quiet song he's just really inconsistent all night cross calls him to play his solo set in the middle of the show and he's like nowhere to be found uh and eventually uh in the middle of everybody i love you i guess neil is uh is just so fed up with all this just this the erratic playing that neil just takes his guitar off and just sets it down on the stage and storms off and they have this huge fight backstage. It's like civil war. Crosby and Nash and Neil are accusing Stills of treating him like servants and still saying, you know, no, I'm trying to be, I'm trying to do what I do. I'm trying to be like kind of the musical director. Remember, it worked really well on our first album and, uh, and they're just not having it. Yeah. And then I think like Neil Young, like he pulled Crosby and Nash aside and said, you guys should tour on your own without Stills. Right. Like again, which in a way you could say like, oh, that's probably pretty good advice because like Stills was getting out of control. But then you look at it from Stills' point of view and it's like, this guy, look at this dude. He's like trying to like He's undermine my, my authorities. He's telling these guys to go away. Yeah. You know, they, I, I think like later in that tour, like when they were in Chicago, they actually like called off the show because like the rest of the band was essentially like staging a mutiny against Steven Stills. And then there was this thing, you know, I guess it was like revenge for the Greg Reeves firing because like Neil Young then like insisted that they fired Dallas Taylor, who had been like in the band really since the beginning. And I know Dallas Taylor at some point like had some issues that like his name wasn't in the band title. You know, because he was like the only guy. It wasn't like Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Taylor. Although, you know, obviously he wasn't famous, so he wasn't going to be in the the band name. But Stills and Taylor were pretty tight. But, like, there was no way that the rest of the band wasn't going to listen to Neil Young. So then they fired Dallas Taylor. And I think at that point, I think this thing that we were talking about with Stills, where he could probably see, you know, in real time that Neil Young was reaching a certain level of prominence and that it was, like, dangerously, like, in, you know, he was in danger of being usurped in his own band, essentially. And that Neil Young was doing it after, I'm sure in Still's mind again, that he thought like, oh, I'm nice enough to invite you into this great opportunity and you repay me by like traumatizing me again, essentially. You know, and that's what's really happening to him. And Neil would come out like, 30 minutes through the set, right? Like, like CSN were basically the Neil Young opening act, really. They bring Neil out midway through the show as sort of like the main event, or at least that's how it came across, which must have been absolutely maddening the stills. And again, like, man, you got to just sit back and marvel at Neil Young. And uh, we'll get into this more in this next in our next episode. I don't want to, like, spend too much time on this, but, like, there's, like, a Machiavellian thing here, like, where he could, like, assume so much control by, like, again, appearing to be passive, you know? And... It's such a telling contrast with Stills because, like, when he was witnessing this going on, Stills doesn't take notes and, like, say, like, well, maybe I should be more like Neil. I should lay back and maybe they'll come to me. He just becomes more aggressive. And, like, he, like, is asserting himself even more. And, like, this is around the time, and I think this actually ended up on 4-Way Street where he started playing the piano version of For What It's Worth, where, like, he, like, starts you know, just banging away on the piano. And he's just like ranting at the crowd where he's like, it becomes like this gospel number almost. And it's like really self-indulgent and it just goes on forever. And like, I know there's an instance on, on one of these shows, like where he like literally wouldn't leave the stage, like during his acoustic portion of the show, like he played four and 20 and, and black queen. And, uh, it just drove the rest of the band up the wall. And it, it, it I think it really ended up as much as anything derailing that tour. Well, and then, of course, not only are there professional differences, uh, you got your personal differences, too, because Stephen, at this point, he was dating 
Rita Coolidge, the, the backing singer, a veteran of the uh, really tumultuous Delaney and Bonnie tour and uh, Mad Dogs and Englishman tour. I guess she really loved like dysfunctional rock tours. Uh, <laughs> right. And she hit the jackpot with this. She uh, met stills when she was invited to sing on the session for uh, Love the One You're With, and she really liked Graham Nash. She kind of saw him across the room, and they started talking. Everyone likes Graham Nash, the ladies' man. Everyone, yeah, he's like the ladies' man, yeah. And Nash said, oh yeah, next time we're in LA to play a show, give me a call, you'll be my date. I'll be at Steven's house, here's his number. She calls <laughs> Steven's house, Steven intercepts the call. Oh yeah, Graham, Graham changed his mind, but uh, but I'm free. So she and, and still start having a thing. And then Nash ends up finding out about it. And so there's this love triangle between them all with, with Rita as the uh, as the, sort of the main point. And um, I guess midway through the tour, it's sort of at the end of the tour, uh, Nash, ever the, the English gentleman, uh, decides to, to tell Stephen in person that he just lost his girlfriend. Like Rita's with him now. And uh, Stills uh, comes out swinging, which is uh, not good for their already tenuous relationship. Yeah, you know, and... I feel like this ended up being an issue with these guys for like years. I think it wasn't until like maybe the later 70s that like Stills and Nash buried the hatchet like about this. Like this was something that really stuck in Stills's craw like for a long, long time. And I, I mean, I think it was maybe the principle of it more than like, I mean, I think he was into Rita Coolidge, but you know, that idea that like, hey, like, you know, bros before hoes, like that old saying, right. you know, as, as they say, not that I condone that reference to a woman but i'm just saying like that is what a lot of men feel that you should put your friend before a woman and uh yeah it just ended up being a huge issue with them for a long time he was like really into her i think he like ended up taking an overdose of downers or something at some seedy hotel but before he did he wrote like a message on his bathroom mirror to rita or something like he was really broken up about her i guess the um the pink giraffe on the cover of his first solo album was supposed to be some reference to her or some message to her because it was a gift from her yeah he, oh. he was really messed up about rita for a long time oh man well okay so then they end up putting out four-way street the live record but that's kind of like the capstone of like this early era of like csn and csny like at that point they really are scattered to the winds for a few years and they end up all making their own records and we of course we all know about neil young he ends up being the most successful during this period really culminating with harvest and heart of gold which ends up being a number one song and i don't think steven stills has ever had a number one actually no that's wrong uh, love the one you're with i think was a number one hit so he had a number one hit and heart of gold is a number one hit and you know i i've made this case before i really feel that like early on stills really did keep pace with neil young i think until about like 1972 or so they really were on equal footing like i like for instance i think like the manassas record from 72 oh, is like yeah. such a pinnacle for stills like and I really would put that up with like the Neil Young records of that time. I mean, it's a double record. There's so many different song styles on there. You know, he's writing folk songs. There's like blues songs. There's like hard rocking songs. It's all over the map. And it really is a testament to like what Stills was capable of, like when he had his wits about him. And, you know, I'm such a Stills fanboy that I'll even like stump for the solo records that came after that, like Stills in illegal stills and even like thoroughfare <laughs> gap whoa i know that's like the disco record that he made uh what's that song there's a song like with booty in the title i can't remember like go get your booty or something like that it's like not very good and also he's on a horse on the cover of that record so he didn't <laughs> learn his lesson from before when he got thrown off but um you know there was something that happened i think after 72 or so where it's like he lost his way and i think it had to do with the drug and alcohol abuse that he was going through. I think he was also, again, in his own way, as much as we talked about Crosby in our last episode, alienating people. You know, I think Stills did that a lot too. Um, just because, again, I think he had this very forceful energy about him that I think was rooted a lot in creativity. I think he just had like a lot of music he wanted to get out of himself, but he just wasn't very diplomatic about going, you know, to people and getting them to join him in the way that I think Neil Young was able to do. You know, he just drove people away because he was so intense. Yeah, there's the great quote that Stills had about Manassas. He said, my new band is a dictatorship, and I like that. My experience with democracy and rock and roll is that it's a total failure. And I feel like that encapsulates his entire working method of the early 70s right there. Right, and like the fact that he would say that out loud, too, I think right? is part yeah. of the problem. Because I think, honestly, I think Neil Young feels the same way. I think on his albums, he doesn't look at himself as uh, anything other than a dictator. I think he's very controlling of like what he does in his own music. It's just that like he has like a more easygoing way about him where 
it's like you want to listen to Neil Young. Like you want to yeah. follow him because it's like, well, we're going to do something great if we follow this guy. It doesn't feel as hectoring in the way that it is with Stills, where I think Stills would, you know, let you know that, yeah, I'm the one in control and you're following me and I'm making you great. If I weren't here, you wouldn't be great. And that just alienates people. It bothers them, you know, and it just drives them away. And, uh, and when you add a bunch of cocaine on top of that, you know, like when you're just doing drugs all day long because you don't want to leave the studio, yeah, it, it just it just makes things worse and compounds it all. And it really is sad to me that he couldn't hold Manassas together. I think that was a great band. Oh, it was an incredible band. But yeah, that band fell apart, and then he ended up trying to revive CSNY again with the Human Highway record, which we talked about a bit last week. Yeah, there's been, I think Nash in his biography uh, or in, in interviews, at some point in the past, he said that they wanted everybody to get to Maui and, and the sort of underlying secret mission of all that was to try to get Stills clean. Because I think at that point they recognized that Stills's uh, cocaine, Jim Beam and cheeseburger diet was not not good for him <laughs> or anyone around him. Right. And I think it was theorized in the, the Jimmy McDonough book, Shaky, the Neil Young bio. I think it was from that. But yeah, th there was a, a good couple weeks down there where they were working on songs. I think Stills had um, See the Changes and Nash had And So It Goes and Crosby had Homeward Through the Haze. They had some great songs to work with, but yeah, the same old problems cropped up fairly quickly. And it, it's been theorized that there was some kind of like cocaine deal that, that went awry that pissed somebody off down there. It's, it's, it's up for debate about what exactly happened, but it's just safe to say Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young were just being Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young again. Then they splintered for about another year and then they came back together in the spring of 74 for the Doom Tour. I love talking about the Doom Tour so much. There's so much to get into with that. We we, we did a lot in the, uh, in the Crosby episode. This is where uh, they basically realized that their commercial fortunes individually hadn't, they had been faring very well in the marketplace recently and they could just mint money by doing a, a reunion tour, the biggest tour that I think had really been mounted at that stage. I mean, it was just one of the first arena tours ever. Yeah, it was, it, it was a massive tour and yeah, there was all this decadence going on backstage and I think you can hear the effects of that decadence most audibly on Stephen Stills. Like when you listen yeah. to, there was that live record that came out the live box set a few years ago, the, the CSNY 74, which I love. I love that record. But like when you listen to Stills sing, like, Love the One You're With, his voice already sounds like pretty shot. And this is like 1974. And, you know, I think part of that came from them playing these huge, you know, stadiums at a time like where, you know, PAs were still in the process of being, uh, you know, sort of outfitted for venues that side. I, I think that they often had technical issues on that tour. But even, you know, factoring that in, I feel like you can already hear Stills' talent being diminished a bit, you know, by how much he was drinking and drugging at that time. Um, there's also, like, all these great backstage stories from that tour. Like, my favorite Stephen Stills' insane story uh, is about him and Bob Dylan on that tour. Have you heard this story? No, I don't think I have. Okay, so the, apparently Bob Dylan, he shows up during the Doom tour, and uh, he just, you know, he's hanging out backstage, and he's already written all the songs for Blood on the Tracks. Like, he hasn't recorded the album yet, but there's all these stories about Bob Dylan at this time sort of cornering people and, and playing them the Blood on the Tracks songs. Like, he wanted to show these songs off. I think because he knew that these songs were freaking amazing, and he wanted to blow people away. So he corners Stephen Stills in a hotel room, and he's only playing for Stills, by the way. Like, Graham Nash apparently was, like, outside the door, trying to listen in and he was like insanely jealous that Bob Dylan only focused on Stephen Stills and in a way I think that speaks to Stephen Stills's status even at this time that like people really respected what he had done with with uh, CSN and CSNY and then Buffalo Springfield so anyway Bob Dylan plays him all the blood on the track songs and Stephen Stills reaction is basically like eh eh <laughs> <laughs> not really into it, dude. I don't really feel it. And I think he even said later to somebody else that, like, you know, Bob Dylan's not a real songwriter and all this stuff. <laughs> so anyway, he's, like, very <laughs> underwhelmed hearing these songs. And then Bob Dylan, he looks at Stephen Stills and he's like, okay, Stephen, well, why don't you play me something you just wrote? And, like, I think, <laughs> I think Stills kind of froze up then and, like, you know, the story fizzled out then. I just love that idea that, like, Bob Dylan's playing Tangled Up in Blue and Stills is like... It's still not good enough for him. Exactly. It just, it's such a great portrait of like how insane he was at this time and like how his ego had really gone to his head, I think, at this point. Is this the same era where, where he was insisting that during the time that he was in Buffalo Springfield, he was a secret like CIA agent and went on like 
secret undercover missions in Vietnam or something. I, I think yeah. we made like some really outrageous claims around this time too. Yeah, there's all these stories about him, yeah, like claiming that he went to Vietnam like in this era and that he was also like, I think wearing like military gear, like backstage. And he would even like have people go through like different, like military paces. You know, I don't know if they were like literally (laughs) marching backstage, but like he was, I don't know. It was like, he was Colonel Kurtz in apocalypse now, (laughs) you know, like that. So yeah, it's like ego and again, cocaine and like, yeah, you're on this huge tour where everyone is catering to you. And you know, like more than anyone else in this band. And I think, you know, all these guys, again, as we've said, are like major egomaniacs. It seems like in this era in, in particular, like the fame and the drugs were like were really going to Stephen Stills' head. Yeah, when David Crosby isn't the most insane person in a group of people, that group of people, the dysfunction level is so far off the charts that it defies description. I think that's where, where we're at now with Stills in this era. And the fact that they tried to get back together after this tour to finish Human Highway blows my mind. I mean, I yeah. guess they knew how, how financially successful that would have been, but Jesus Christ. Yeah, they tried to do that again, and it clearly didn't work. And not only that, but like Stephen Stills, again, it's like with Neil Young, like he couldn't quit Neil Young. And like, so they end up having this album where they're going to make a record together, like the first Stills Young record. Um, and it ends up being called Long May You Run. And we talked about this in our previous episode about how for a time Crosby and Nash were involved and then their vocals ended up getting wiped out, which really pissed them off so much that they refused to work with Stills for like, I guess, three months. And then they <laughs> got reunited again. But in terms of like Stills and Young, you know, they made this record. And, like, the title track by Neil Young is great. Yeah, I mean, that's a classic song. I feel like a lot of the other Neil Young songs on that record are, like, pretty lightweight and, like, not that great. And it's amazing to think that this was the same era that he was making albums, like, On the Beach and Zuma and, uh, you know, Tonight's the Night, like, where he had, like, a lot of great songs laying around. But, like, you know, for the Stills Young band, he's like, oh, let's play Fountain Blue. You know, this is the best I can come up with for this band. So it seems like maybe his commitment wasn't totally into the group. And then, you know, they end up going on tour together. And, like, Young just rips Stills, he, he rips Stills' his heart out again. Oh, they're on two separate tour buses. And after a show in South Carolina, Neil's tour bus takes a literal fork in the road and goes in a different direction than Stills. Stills gets to the next destination and arrives at the hotel and finds a telegram that says, Dear Stephen... Funny how things that start spontaneously end that way. Eat a peach, Neil. Oh, God. Eat a peach, man. Eat a peach. Why don't you say fuck you? I mean, that's that's like such a fuck you move from Neil Young. I mean, again, I'm so torn here because I love Neil Young. I love Stephen Stills. The Neil Young fan of me is like, that's pretty awesome that he just decided he didn't want to be on this tour. He's following his muse and he bailed. The Stephen Stills fan in me is like, what a dick. How could Neil Young do that to Stephen Stills, you know? And, like, Stephen Stills was shattered by that. Oh, yeah, he gave that really pathetic quote. He was, like, asked for comment after Neil left, and he said, I have no future. That was yeah. his official comment on the matter. Which, I mean, it's... And, and the worst part was, I think Neil, like, went on, on tour. Like, the official reason that he left was that he was on, on vocal rest. It was, like, doctor's orders, and he couldn't sing. But then he went out on tour, like, weeks after, like, on his own, too. So just, just to rub salt in Stills' wounds. So... We talked in our last episode, of course, about what happens next. You know, Stills, he's been abandoned by Neil Young, so then he ends up reuniting with Crosby and Nash, who were pissed off about the Long May You Run incident, and they made CSN uh, in 1977, which was like a pretty big hit record. I think that, you know, it's, I think it ended up selling 4 million copies. Uh, it really showed, you know, after all this time, you know, even though these guys weren't as successful on their own anymore, the brand of CSN was still really strong, you know, and they would like move records uh, if these guys got back together. And um, yeah, I mean, we talked about this before in our Crosby episode about the whole story around Daylight Again, which I think is a fascinating sort of example of like how the brand really took over, I think, at that point, because like these guys, I, I mean, really none of these guys were like were in great shape, but the record company felt like, well, your last record sold 4 million copies. Of course, you know, the the records you put out in the early 70s were also huge hits. So, like, let's have another CSN record. But, like, the whole story around Daylight Again, I mean, it's kind of depressing, uh, like, how that record came together. Yeah, man, well, Crosby was just, he was in no shape to record. So, 
Stills and Nash just out of pure necessity got together and they financed the recording themselves. And to sort of fill in for where, where Crosby's vocals would have been, they had people like Art Garfunkel and Timothy B. Schmidt sing those parts. And executives of Atlantic were like, basically, no thanks, call us so we can get Cross back into the picture. Because, yeah, the, nobody wants a Stills-Nash album. They want a CSN record. So we can just, like, mint money. So they got Crosby back in, who, I mean, it was like weekend at Bernie style. I mean, they really just had oh, to basically yeah. prop him up. I mean, it was, he, he had Delta, which is an amazing song, but it, that was really his only serious contribution to the album, which did great. I think it got to like number eight and went platinum, but it was it was mostly through Stills' work. I think he had Southern Cross on that one, which oh, became yeah. like, I think the first MTV like CSN era hit, right? Yeah, it's amazing that they were able to pull like that song in particular out of like, their asses essentially i mean yeah. i think yeah. i think basically what stills did is like he took that song i think it was recorded by these two other guys who had the music but like the lyrics were really bad so then stills just took their music and he wrote new lyrics for it and it sounds like a classic csn song like you hear that song now and it's like oh wow that came out in the early 80s like it doesn't really necessarily sound like the other music, uh, even on that record. I mean, it has like a really kind of classic folk rock sound to it. And like, I feel like that's the song from the 80s, I guess along with Wasted on the Way, the Graham Nash song mm. from that album, that like people would point to and be like, oh yeah, that's a classic song. And like, if they play that live, people will sing along with it. As in rough shape as Stills was at this time, Again, I feel like Daylight Again, it's an example of like how he could really kind of marshal the resources, I guess along with Nash, and at least make it, look like you know this is the facade of a band you know it's like it's a convincing enough facsimile of crosby stills and nash where again yeah they could still sell millions of records you know by by putting out an album like that and it was really i think southern cross is probably the last classic crosby stills and nash or crosby stills nash and young song wouldn't you say because the next oh, yeah. bunch without, went, without question pretty dismal yeah i mean starting yeah, with american dream yeah, we talked about this a little bit last week. Yeah, you have American Dream, you have Live It Up with the atrocious hot dog cover. <laughs> you have After the Storm, which again, like, you know, I revisited After the Storm for this uh, series. I don't want to go overboard uh, and overpraise that album, but I, and I probably just had low expectations, but like, I actually think that's like a pretty decent record. And I think the Stills contributions, like in particular, are, like, are pretty good. But yeah, it's like nowhere near what you would consider to be like prime era for this band. And it's amazing. It, it, Crosby Stills Nash album only hit 98 on Billboard. I just think that's that's amazing. That's remarkable that it was that like that was the degree to which no one cared. And again like I think what's tough with Stills is that he was such a great guitar player and I actually do like his voice a lot. I don't think it's like as conventionally pretty as Crosby or Nash, but he could be like a really kind of forceful singer on records and, and like when you listen to live bootlegs. And I feel like you can really hear in him the deterioration more than the other guys. Like I think Crosby and Nash, like they still sing like really well. Like Neil, of course, still sounds great, but like stills, like, I don't know. Like you, you really hear the ravages of time. Like as you get into these later records, yeah, I I feel horrible saying this, but I, I look at Stills and I hear his voice and and some of his reason out. But I, I think of like Brian Wilson. I just think of like this figure that had such a singular instrument that's now not there, and he doesn't seem to be trying really in some of the latter you know decades of of his career. Uh, yeah, which is it's hard. It's hard, and like in a way though, it's been like humbling for him. Like you see interviews with him now, and he's much more magnanimous, I think, than he ever would have been in the seventies. You know, like oh, there yeah. was that there was that whole story, and we'll get into this, I think, in our next episode about Neil Young. But you know, there was like another Buffalo Springfield reunion in the early 2010s that like Neil Young ended up short circuiting, basically. But before that happened, like I think Rolling Stone was talking to Stills about working with Neil, and again, like we've talked a lot in this episode about like in their prime, like Neil Young and Stephen Stills like, were locking heads because they were both like alpha dogs. You know, they both wanted to have control of whatever musical situation that they were in. And at that point, he was basically just saying like, hey, like, it's a privilege to work with Neil Young. Like, I'm lucky to do anything with this guy. And, uh, you know, in a way you could say like, oh, isn't that great that he has that perspective? But I don't know. I, I miss the alpha dog Stephen Stills. Like, I miss the football yeah. jersey, coke snorting genius. Horseback. Yeah. The guy who's like falling off of horses and then he gets back on the horse. <laughs> to make a disco rock record, you know? Like, 
that guy, I love that guy from the 70s. And, I, and again, like I love all the Steven Stills records from the 70s, even the ones that aren't that great, because I feel like he really had a strong personality that even shone through when he was experimenting with like different genres and different, you know, sort of instrumentation that like didn't totally suit him, you know, but he still had this visionary quality to him where it's like, yeah, I, I can play Latin music. I can play country music. I can play disco music because I am Steven Stills and I can make it work. And he just feels like kind of broken now. Looking at his first solo record, that had Hendrix, Clapton, and a Beatle on it. I mean, to have that degree (laughs) of confidence to be like, yeah, I'm fine. I can go head to head with these guys. I cannot imagine. I don't know. And maybe, you know, maybe it really was Neil leaving him on that tour. I don't know. I almost feel like in a lot of ways, never fully recovered from that. If I actually like plot out his solo work and stuff, it really did seem to break him in a way. Yeah, man. Neil is Machiavelli, man. He broke Stephen Stills through pure <laughs> passive aggression. It's unbelievable. We're going to take a quick break to get a word from our sponsor before we get to more rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world until it didn't. They came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am... The Ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which is morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so this is the part of the episode where we look at the pro side of each part of the rivalry. So let's talk about the pro case for Stephen Stills first. Like I said at the top of the episode, I love Stephen Stills. I think out of like the original three members of CSN, Stephen Stills is my favorite. I think he's the best musician, best songwriter. I think he's got a lot of charisma. I like how crazy he became in the 70s. I, I, in some way, I feel like his arrogance was justified for a while until it wasn't. And he unfortunately, I think, self-destructed. And it became, again, like this tragic cautionary tale, I think, in a lot of ways. But again, I think if if you love that first record, which I do, and if you uh, just, I think, appreciate this band, you have to give it up to Stephen Stills because I, he really was, I think, the musical driving force 
uh, in the early stages of, of CSN. Oh yeah, just total architect of their sound. And I credit him not only with the sound, but also like I said earlier, like I think that he had sort of the industry cloud at that period to get the band off the ground in the early days too. And I just, what he brought to the group, I, I always think of him as like sort of like the anchor, you know? I mean, just musically, he would make like the track beds that they could like then layer their harmonies over and everything. His voice was always at the bottom, that like really soulful grit while uh, Cross and Nash were kind of fluttering over above. Yeah, I, I feel like that he was probably the most indispensable of, of all four. And, uh, you know, Neil Young, not one to dole out praise very easily, uh, still refers to Stills as a as a genius. And, you know, who might I say otherwise? I think that was like when Stills' body was on the ground with a knife in his back. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Stills was dead. And then Neil Young said, okay, well, I've just murdered you, but you are a genius. So I'll, 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 <laughs> I'll tip my cowboy hat to you. To go to, I guess, the pro-CNY side or the anti-Steven Stills side, you know, I think it's fair to say that he could be a bully and he could be very abrasive. And even though I, I'm inclined to think that he was driven just to make great records at that time and he had like, you know, just like a lot of piss and vinegar in his blood and it drove him to be artistically great. You know, he, he just didn't have a delicate touch with that and he could really alienate people by just letting them know like precisely how great he was and how much they needed him to be great. And, you know, again, looking at him in contrast with Neil Young, I feel like Neil could assert his power in a much more laid back kind of way, which I think ultimately served him well. I think too, with Stephen Stills, you know, he didn't have that inner compass that Neil Young had ultimately. You know, I think Neil Young was right to say that like, you know, maybe just working quickly and, and not laboring over things and making them perfect, you know, you can end up making more records like that and your records will have more life and, and people will listen to them 40 years later and, and find new things in them. Um, that's obviously benefited Neil Young great. You know, I think he had a sense of taste maybe that Stephen Stills didn't have ultimately, which I think really hurt him along with just his self-destructive impulses. Yeah, just from a musical standpoint too, I think the others kind of smoothed out some of Stills' rough edges. I feel like he is so based in the blues and, and that sort of like Southern rock type of sound that comes through on so many of his solo albums. I think that people like Crosby's sort of California spacey jazz tendencies and then Graham's British Invasion pop sensibilities helped really create something new that I feel like could have been too one note with just Steven there, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think so. I mean... I mean, that kind of goes into our final section here where we talk about what all these guys bring together. Yeah, certainly I think that leavened what Stills did. Although I'm more inclined to think that what Stills brought to the table was even more valuable in a way because I think without him, Crosby, Stills, and Nash would have been like a very easy listening band from the beginning. And I think what Stills brought mm. was that grit, you know, the, the the blues in his voice. He had the vision to, you know, take these beautiful folk songs and to like explode them out into these beautiful soundscapes while at the same time also producing just these wonderful stripped down songs like helplessly hoping like he could go both ways so yeah he was the visionary of the band and i think he also brought some grit that they really needed yeah i think that still sort of provided sort of the funk too right, right. and i feel that way when i listen to crosby and um and graham solo stuff too i mean it, it's a great like, like i think i call it like a hammock rock album like I, I can put it on like a summer day when i'm like sitting outside or something and just mellow me out but something but stills definitely something heavier more grit that like i said earlier just kind of anchored it and, and made it feel a little more earthy and that's i think again it, it's such an incredible that whole band is such an incredible example of just like the band being more than just some of its parts well, you know, Jordan, I've had so much fun digging into CSNY that I've been helplessly hoping that we could just talk about this forever. <laughs> but unfortunately, we're going to reach part three, the final part of our series, next week, where we talk about Neil Young murdering Stephen Stills, getting deeper into that, as well as, you know, all the other conflicts that have existed between Neil and CSN over the years. So until then, thank you again for listening to another episode of Rivals. We'll look forward to talking about more beefs and feuds and long-simmering resentments next week. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Sean Titone and Noel Brown. The supervising producers are Taylor Shacoin and Tristan McNeil. The producer is Joel Hatstadt. I'm Jordan Runtog. And I'm Stephen Hyden. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. 
This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how three 20-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tail. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. 